So as far as I was concerned, it was just this figure from a dream he'd had where I had to get some maroon to red face paint, apply it all over my face and neck completely. I had to black out my teeth and put this stuff all over them. And I don't know what's in it, but it tasted horrible and it burned my lips. I was crouched behind this big bin looking very sinister. Like evil, I think, is probably the, a term that could be fairly used. I walked past one person on the way there and they screamed. Maroon Man! Maroon Man! Welcome to another episode of Mandatory Redistribution Party. My name is Sean Morley. And my name is Jack Evans. This week's episode is about art and how it can help us mere mortals glimpse the sublime. And how its continued existence can only be justified if it makes a solid return on investment. Much like Northern Children and the entire Global South, art only exists to be fed into the open mouth of the economy. This episode, we are joined by Mando's arts and culture correspondent Jane Edwards, with further special guest appearances from Sam Nicarasti, Tom Burgess and Josie Hypatia. Thank you to everyone who supports Mando's on Patreon. We've been very grateful to everyone who's subscribed so far, and for our patrons, we'll be uploading an extended cut of one of the interviews from this episode. If you are unable to do us a Patreon, we also very much appreciate a classic share on the social media platforms, or indeed, text messaging hyperlink directly to your dad. Thank you. And now, to art. What is art? When you get rich enough and you're bored of gold, then you buy art and you don't you don't look at it. You just put it in like a um, Mayersk shipping container and then hope that its value goes up. And the art, the the more the value goes up, the better the art. That's what art is. So it's not like um, it's not quite like putting your assets into gold. It's more like putting your assets into like a horse race and just hoping. It's even better than a horse race. Yeah, I pay someone to decide what is art. They tell me, and then I buy that, and then I put it in a Mayersk shipping container. Labelled art, and anything that isn't in that shipping container is just frivolous. Yeah, water, bricks. Yeah, I'm thinking about where you'd normally keep a Mayersk shipping container. Really easy to make the distinction between art and not art. (laughs) (laughs) Done? Answered? Um... I feel like I've got some reservations left over. Move on. I I th- I, this isn't even a segment. What did we get? Two minutes out of that? Well, I'm, I'm still, I'm still, I don't feel sated. What about new art? Weren't that devaluable the other art? Weren't, um, isn't art subject to inflation? People are making all, art all the time. Nah. Pe- children putting out drawings at a rate of knots. Nah, children's drawings, worthless, pointless, because they don't contribute to GDP. They could do if they get in the tape one day, make an unmade bed or... Uh-uh. Balance a lemon on a light bulb or what? a splodge. <laughs> Have you? Is the lemon light bulb made up? Lemon light bulb's real, real installation. Oh, oh wow, cool. Well, someone balanced a lemon on a light bulb. That sounds um, hard. Yeah, probably is really hard. It might be like um, the Tower of Pisa, where it needs like a, one decade. Someone needs to like increment it by like a millimeter. Otherwise, the lemon will fall off the light bulb. Is it real or is it? have they put like a pin in the lemon or is it... I think the whole, the value of that piece is predicated on the fact it's done with balancing alone. Fuck. Made you think, hasn't it? I tell you what, <laughs> here's a question for you. Are magic tricks art? Because a lot magic of people... Magic tricks art. A lot of comedians get annoyed because comedy's not classed as like art by the UK Arts Council. Mm. You know, the real contest's big question is, 
is magic art? Is Paul Daniels an artist? Let's throw over to our arts and culture correspondent, Jane Edwards. Is magic art? Is magic art? Um, my only reservation with magic is that you're essentially copying other people. So you learn the tricks and then they're kind of passed on and on and on. So your only take on it is like a different outfit or like a different <gasps> theme song behind it. Or and now I'm going to get, I'll be like found dead in my bed in like a couple of weeks. Someone will open, they will open your bed covers and like doves will fly out. This is it. And you'll never be seen exactly. again. But I, I don't, I really, I like magic. I like watching it, but the concept of it, I think <laughs> is uh, just backpedaling. Try to dig yourself out of a, a- <laughs> Yeah, dig yourself out of a grave here. Things things can be good without being art. Yeah, that's that's true. I like a cup of tea. This is it. I like a rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> Every magician I know, you know, at the fringe or whatever, yeah. are, are pickup artist adjacent. Yes. Oh. Is pickup artistry art? It says it in the name. It's like con artist, isn't it? It's not. Are they artists? Oh. It's, it's Sandra Bullock. It's so Sandra Bullock in Ocean's Eight. She's an artist. It's a skill. Being a con artist and being a pickup artist are like in the middle between two extremes, and oh, those yeah. two extremes is being a painter and being a boxer. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask: Is boxing art? Boxing art. You can paint with blood. I think so. It takes like dedication. Maybe that's what the missing ingredient is: a level of dedication to something that's elusive yeah. could you be dedicated to not art could you be dedicated to something that's not art uh, and then make you'd make it art right so if i like just spent all my time just dedicated to doing a really good job at like being a receptionist it would be art you'd be like a hostess wow. then, wouldn't you or like you'd be yeah. like very very skilled in welcoming people into a building and your boss would get really annoyed because people are just come in to see how good the receptionist yes. is and they're like that's cogging up the arteries of this <laughs> office because <laughs> everyone's just in the like the foyer yeah. <laughs> T- taking pictures a lot of people kicked off because of that um you know like reskill ballet dancer government propaganda but actually mm-hmm. if you reskill and you become a receptionist you're still an artist possibly even more of an artist on that desk than you were in the ballet yeah people getting Stop really like angry about cyber cyber can be art have you not heard of gimp <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cyber can be art cyber can be art yeah i reckon make a gif a gif's art could you have a gif where only one frame is art and the rest just junk <laughs> <laughs> And then billionaires start investing in gifts. That's where the big, that's why they're trying to creep in really strict copyright rules everywhere yeah. so they can crack down on gifts and then one person will have the gifts. Yeah. Uh, that's the way it's going. Soon, art galleries, just QR codes wall to wall. Yeah. And you'll only, and then that's the only way you can see that gif. Yeah. You, you scan it, takes you to Uber Eats. You can uh, get someone, minimum wage worker, to bicycle you a picture. <laughs> An Instaprint. <laughs> <laughs> this could be quite good. Like, it could stop people responding to me with reaction gifts, mm. which will, I will support, even though it's in the interest of billionaires, because those reaction gifts will be in a billionaire's Mayersk shipping container on usb pens just stacks and stacks of them that sounds good well i watched um a really good yeah. two films recently um you know called my rembrandt yeah and that's like about um a guy you know people who are just obsessed with rembrandt mm. they only buy rembrandts and this guy this dutch guy who is like the sixth um jan sick so he's an aristocrat and he is obsessed with finding new Rembrandts and it's this kind of weirdly tragic story. It's a really, really good film. There's lot, there yeah. seems to be like three films out at the moment about art and money and how, what is it? And But one of the guys in them, The Price of Everything, says that art has to be really expensive because otherwise nobody would care about it. Nobody would keep hold of these things if they weren't expensive. It seems kind of fucked up. Fuck. Yeah, that is fucked. Loads of people try to rally to the defense of arts by going, 
Art is one of Britain's greatest exports. It contributes X to GDP. That is a fucking bad argument, man. Yeah. Because you could just take all the people that work in the arts and put them in the salt mines and that might contribute more to GDP. And if you accept the premise of GDP equals good, it is literally saying that art only has value to the extent that it can make someone else money or make you money. Like, Hmm. and that's fucked. (laughs) Like, I think in, like, previous centuries, people would justify, like, some completely over-the-top military uh, programs and strategies and murder and conquering other people with the idea that this will ensure safety for the younger generation so they can just (laughs) sit in a tree and eat Dairy Lee and write poems and think about art. But now we don't even have, like, that rhetoric. Dairy Lee, in the In history, in the past... What do you think Dairy Lee was invented? It's a type of cheese. All cheeses have always just been around, like elements. People discover Introduced them. Introduced 1950, Dairy Lee. That's a brand, though, but the actual the actual substance has been around since the year Cheese, yeah. yeah cheese. Dairy Lee? Yeah. What is Dairy Lee? What do you mean? It's just a soft cheese. Dairy Lee mm. got branded. Yeah, but do they exist yet? Yeah, but All right, I'll allow it. <laughs> Thanks. But what, I'm, what was I getting at? Because... <laughs> Previously, the writer would be like art and ability to just have the free pursuit of art was like this utopian ideal that you could justify murder in the name of. But now it's sort of flipped in that you can do art only if it justifies like exports and the improvement of a state economy. So like there is no like utopian ideal that we go through like a lifetime of slog for. We, mm. we can slog at anything you like as long as it helps the big guy, Mr. Nation. You, you even get that when you first start doing something like stand-up because, you know, your parents are like, not obviously having a go at my parents, but it's really like, mm. what is this getting you? From your first gig almost, it's a bit like... And when will you start making money? If you do tell them like, oh, you know, I opened this gig and got paid 200 quid. Then yeah, like, oh, it seems oh. worth it then. And I guess that's it on a small scale, isn't it? <laughs> and that gig you did. Yeah. Odds are you probably hated that gig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like what we're in it for is so anti... Like there's two ways you can go in comedy. There's the way that will make your parents go, all right, I'll leave you alone for a few months. And then there's the way that in any way satisfies why you have started becoming a performer. <laughs> <laughs> People almost think jobs that are enjoyable shouldn't get paid. So they assume that arts jobs because you're doing something you ostensibly want to do that like it almost doesn't deserve money yeah almost any arts job like you said at the start jane of like it's like you're getting really really skilled at this specific thing there are such like precise skills in arts there's general skills as well but often they're like very precisely applied and like it takes years to get good at them so you're working at something getting really skilled at it but then it's really fucking precarious work. Mm. It's precarious. It's not that well paid. It has a chance of being very, very well paid. And it does like this subtle job in a society, which is like the arts do something or, or maybe like entertainment more specifically. It does something a little bit like like reproductive labor and that like it keeps your workforce sane and stops them going absolutely mad. Mm, yeah. Like imagine a world with no entertainment. There's no telly to put on. There's no radio. There's no way you can go and see anything. And that people have the same kind of insanely like nose to the dirt work ethic that they're forced to <laughs> just across the globe right now. They'd, they'd go mad, like your workforce would just be killing themselves. People would be like, oh yeah, STEM, you know, or like industry, that's the thing that's worth, you know, like if you if you work on make mm. designing the tech between like OLED mm. televisions or super fast internet, like that that in their minds would be more valuable because there's this material thing. And then it's like, okay, well, what are you piping down that internet wire? What are you putting on that television? Mm. Yeah, why would people have that in their homes? Mm. I mean, there's also the thing with STEM of, uh, I like there's, there's a conspiracy theory of, you know, they like push in to try and get more women in STEM, which obviously more gender parity across every aspect of the economy. Yes, please. Fantastic. But because women get paid less because of the gender pay gap, the amount of women in an industry drives labor costs down for business. So, right. so loads of companies are very, very interested in getting more women in STEM because uh, they want to drive the labor costs down to boost profits. And again, like obviously more women should like gender parity across all aspects of the economy. Good. But 
that cynical objective fucked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I think about my pay, I told one of our friends a couple of weeks ago how much I actually get paid. Um, he thought I was on like this entire time, 32 grand a year. I was like, oh. mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been friends with him for like 10 years now. And I was just like, what? Because I've worked in technology. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman, but it's just very like, it seems with everything, it's harder just to walk in somewhere and just get something that seems fair. Mm. Yeah. I've never really been able to break that barrier despite sometimes like carrying whole projects doing like project management doing this filling all these gaps being a deputy editor you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah you can never seem to get and that applies to artwork as well right yeah yeah time. you don't get i mean the the thing that it, that marries the two things is that you don't get promoted to above a certain level by being good at the job <laughs> because you no. being good at the job means you should be exactly where you are right now you yes. get promoted by being my dad's friend, my dad, my <laughs> you're my child. <laughs> you are yeah. friends with me. We grew up in the same area. You remind me of me. <laughs> yeah. This is what this gets is you up it. there. Well, definitely. I think it applies to all art, but specifically with comedy, we can talk about how people who don't do it like have this assumed expertise, which then is exponentially worse if you're a woman. So there's the people with art, you know, like, oh, you know, we, we talked about like an unmade bed. People be like, oh, I could just bloody tip a bin all this bloody shite. Or the, the people you see online who think that painting gets worse because it's less photorealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, like these like weird ideas about art. But then the, the, the comedy version of it is the sort of guy comes up to you after a gig and he's like, I've got a few for you. And you're just like, Jesus, yeah. I, I, I'm going to politely smile at you, but I need to get away from you. And we all experience that. But if you're a, a woman, it's way fucking worse, right? Yeah, it's quite... Um, but I think I think for me, it's always been worse when it's like, uh, the promoter to so the person who's asked me to be there mm. and they've just clearly not been listening. <laughs> yeah. That's always the... Um, I remember I was once in Gainsborough and um, I came off and the promoter was like, oh, never apologise to the audience. Never never do that. And it was, you know, like one of these mm. bits I used to do where I'd pretend to fuck something up yeah, and then yeah, be yeah. like, oh, sorry, sorry, it's going wrong. And then and then immediately pull something out which shows that I know completely yeah, what yeah. I'm doing. So he'd like not been listening that much. He'd only heard me apologising and like in front of everyone, he was like giving me like almost like a big telling off. I've just had that a couple of times where mm. people have either just not been understanding what I'm doing or just straight up haven't, didn't even watch my set and but need to give me some kind of advice. So <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. kind of coming up with any and... Well, that's, that's another thing, isn't it, that cuts across class and gender with comedy of how intent, uh, like the intent behind your work of like, like you talked about mm. intentional mistakes and intentional mistakes are a really good tool. Um, yeah. You know, Phil Ellis's fringe show, uh, Unplanned Orphan, which was just like, fuck up after, the premise is basically how badly can it, and cringe can an Edinburgh show go fucking wrong? Um, and like, you know, his accommodation falls through during the show, uh, a fire alarm goes off. Yeah. It's, and he's, and he's begging at one point, he begs the audience, he goes around the audience, like begging for money with his hands out. Uh, and that review that was like, you know, it was a one star review and said, if this was intentional, it would be a work of genius. <laughs> but it's one of the worst shows I've ever seen. Yeah. And oh then, um, I mean, it, and it was it was fucking it was fucking amazing. But you know, yeah. uh, it sounds. I think this guy's from Preston. Nah, he can't be thinking. He can't yeah. be thinking about this. And that's yeah. also why comedy fans, but not mega comedy fans, who are like you know their, their go to is like, oh, I like I like that Stuart Lee. He's good. Yeah. You know, Stuart Lee's like clever comedy. But what Stuart Lee does, and the way he is then seen as a clever comedy guy is he meticulously explains what he's doing and why it's clever spoon feeding the audience so that they understand precisely that what he's doing is intentional because he's told you it is and he's got all the sort of uh class signifiers uh, people assume intent and if you're that is just worse uh if you're i mean never mind being working class and a woman right 
And I think, because when I started as well, I started when I was like 20 and I was really um, sort of, you know, a bit of a mad dress sense and like looked young, you know what I mean? And kind of girly and whatever and bleached, well, not going to get into like stereotypes and stuff like that, but it's like, I think how I come across to people, because there are like young women that I've met who in comedy who are just so like, I mean, we laugh about girl boss stuff, but they are totally sure of themselves and totally like i'm going this way get out of my way which is how you have to be yeah it's like mm. and because i'm not like that at all and because obviously i've been so shy for you which i've grown out of a little bit now but just through like years of forcing myself out of it but being as shy as i was back then it's just total. no one thinks you know what you're doing at all and i think that shows like the problem of of inclusion as being mm. a fix to the to the issues of culture, like of toxic cultures in comedy, because there have been loads of advances with women being um, more included in comedy. Mm. Massive way to go, but it's still a long way away from where it was. Yeah, yeah. But the ones that succeed have to replicate the worst toxic behaviours of the men who can succeed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and thereby make even more impenetrable the idea that that's just the one way you do it. You've got to be just confident to the point of arrogance mm. and so actually some of those like gendered signifiers what like humility <laughs> and not like shouting at people and not like really going hard not just like on the audience mm. but just generally when you're networking just so many loud egos in like Alpha. the green room mm. yeah if, if anyone like backs off from that they're not only now overlooked but also if you're a woman you're going just shows you just can't make it in this industry because yeah. you're not having to go on the punch machine in the green room. I've I've had like conversations with people where you know I'm like okay I'll go and talk to this person or I've got an idea for this and I'll go and speak to this person and mm. sometimes if you especially when I meet someone face to face I can just see like the light going out of their eyes is how I always describe <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> when they're talking to me it's a little bit like as though you are speaking another language because either they have a different impression of you you know yeah. how you are online or whatever and then if you're coming over and you're kind of seem shy I, I always have this thing whenever I meet people new as well I can't help but like like have these like weird stories come into my head that I can't help but just tell them about so obviously that is they're just really like what on earth why are you telling me about like the gunpowder plot do you know what I mean <laughs> so, it's, it's like I don't know it's just like a nervous thing so I think from that it's like you what immediately it's not like they've just watched you die at a gig mm. i think even that is more forgivable than walking up to somebody who might have some sort of opportunity and coming across as you are and not as just someone who's like hey i'm jane edwards how's it going yeah, yeah start my own production company and all that sort of stuff which obviously i'm not <laughs> it's really me it's not based on and this might sound a bit bitter but it's not really mm. based on your comedy or your skills or your writing skills. Like anything in the capitalist hellscape we live in, our mm. art, comedy, it's just not, it's not meritocratic at all. It's not based on merit. I think a lot of people have a delusion that, oh, you know, all you need to concentrate is, is, is your talent. Yeah. Which, you know, comes back to the thing of the problem of saying art has value because of how much money it makes. Comedy gets it both ways because... Arts Council of England won't fund comedy because it sees comedy as being financially sustainable under its own yes, momentum because yes, they look yeah. at Michael McIntyre and they go, well, Arts Council funding wasn't necessary to make Michael McIntyre. It wasn't necessary to make Peter Kay. But then so obviously they think comedy makes so much money mm. that it must support mm. the GDP mm. and therefore could be art. But then when it needs money, they go, oh, we won't give you money. Or when it definitely needs money, they go, it's not culturally relevant because we don't consider it art. Because <laughs> in other circumstances, because it, makes it money. did make money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because it made money, you're not art. And when you lose money, you're not art. So comedy can't win by the same metric. Well, and yeah. it can't experiment. It becomes trapped because, because it can't get that funding. And you know, you know, there's the the thing of uh you know the the best arts funding initiative there ever was was the dole right mm. um and you know Stuart lee talks about that and is like autobiographies about how he, for years he was on the dole and you know uh, Jarvis, Cock even Jarvis cocker and, and like Jarvis all these cocker was big on the dole but Stuart yeah. lee as well said he talked about a 
sort of a stupidly bloated managerialized public sector where you could do like the job of one person was split into five <laughs> so you've got plenty yeah, yeah, of time yeah. to work on your routines there wasn't as much precarious work um that often people do alongside arts jobs you know like zero hours contracts at the fucking crystal maze to name one that i know a lot of comedians in manchester are on it cuts across so many things so i think one thing that would tie almost everything we've just spoke about together is the sort of racial component one of the anxieties i've always had about uh, you know as a comedian as a white male comedian in a sort of alternative alternative comedy space is not a lot of people who aren't white here yeah Mm. and but a lot of people who are white talking about how they're not racist like that's such a a topic of conversation mm, and mm. talking about race. So race mm. comes up a lot of like, yeah, I yeah, met yeah. a racist the other day. Here's what they said. I'm not a racist and I can prove that because of rejoinder. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've had really, I've had really awkward like feelings when I'm on in a gig and someone's doing that. And I'm like, the mm. only black person in this room is the security and they're not yeah. liking yeah. this at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes you, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. Uh, because because it's every layer of it of like of course it's the economic layer but also it's the stuff we were talking about women comics feel pressured into acting like the stereotypical alpha male club comedian in order to be successful because mm-hmm. you've got so many barriers to overcome of like if you're not white all that stuff about like intent and all that kind of stuff like if you start doing surrealism on stage people will be like are they going to mention that they're black when they're going to get to that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's this weird fucking like essentialism people have in expectations of what you're supposed to perform. And I think like that's, I, I imagine that's, there's of many factors where if you were not a white person, there's so many things about alternative comedy that say this space is not for you. Yeah. Mm. And, and it's not just your pub punters as well. I know, I know like there are people who have gone to competitions and said, mm. oh, you mentioned your homosexuality too briefly. It seems like you don't know what you're all about then because your whole set, if you're gay, your whole set should have been about that. Or I've seen it in like industries that are sort of adjacent to comedy. So if you become like a comedian of colour, you get brought on to talk about some of the politicised elements that are part of being that race. And they're like, I'm not an expert on this. I'm just, (laughs) I just talk about things that make me laugh. uh, It's too much to ask me to become an expert on this just because of my skin colour. That's crazy. Mm. Mm. Um, and I'd say that some of the some of the biggest people I know that have found this element of comedy like almost impossible to get across mm. is trans comedians. Oh fuck yeah. yeah! Because that element of, I guess, transness feeling like it's this new or like to your average member of society more confusing concept, mm. it is a complete barrier to someone just listening to what the performer has to say. And it's like, when are you going to address this and? calm me down (laughs) when you're going to make me feel comfortable with seeing a trans person and so if someone wants to do anything beyond talk about trans issues it feels like it's it's impossible but if you say that comedy is supposed to be original or transgressive or do anything interesting you cannot advance that kind of performance or that kind of material Mm. if you are from a starting point that is perceived as different from the norm yeah Hi there, I'm Josie Hypatia Grounds, and I chose that name myself because I'm a trans woman. The middle name Hypatia is from the female librarian of the Library of Alexandria, who was killed by fundamentalist Christians with razor shells and then had her life's work destroyed in a fire. If someone were to ask me what I do creatively, I would always go with how my partner describes me, which is as a show off. I've always enjoyed being on stage and I used to do ballet, I spent a long time being a live musician, I have acted a little bit, um, but it was only when I transitioned in my 30s that I had the confidence in my own identity to go up on stage and try to perform stand-up. I knew I was trans from the age of about four or five. I envied my younger sister. I wanted to wear my mum's shoes and I would put her costume jewellery on when she was out of the house. I would lean my head back so the hairs at the back of my neck would encroach down my spine and I could feel a bit what it would be like to have long hair. And quite soon after that, I 
discovered comedy. I was, I think, nine or ten years old, and my dad let me stay up late to watch Vic Reeves' Big Night Out. And it was the first time I'd seen comedy that didn't presume that everyone was a man who liked a woman or a woman who liked a man, and therefore this is the kind of thing you will find funny. It existed in a world outside of the conventions of normative society. So ever since then, I have been more drawn towards absurd, surrealist, dardarist, metatextual humour because it doesn't make assumptions about the audience. That kind of comedy takes you on a journey to a non-existent world. They didn't exist in a world where people went to work or drove a car and that was the they existed in a world where people had fingers made out of cutlery or giant foreheads and for a lot of growing up i felt that i was in a world that didn't exist certainly it didn't exist in anything i was taught at school because it was uh, a time when discussions of homosexuality weren't allowed in school. When you start doing stand-up comedy, all you've got allotted to you is a five or a seven minute open mic spot. I wanted to take the audience on flights of fantasy. I wanted to establish surreal worlds and unusual modes of performance. But inevitably, the question was there, why are you not addressing the fact that you are a, a trans person? One thing I did for a while, which I thought was, uh, which, which to be honest didn't work, was I would come on stage holding uh, a viola as if I was going to be a musical comedy act. I would wave that around while introducing myself. I would perform my five minutes of material and then I would walk off stage having never even played a note on the viola and without even mentioning that I had it. And after the performance, quite often people would come up to me and say, um, I'm a bit confused. You had that like big violin in your hands. Why, why didn't you play it? I thought you were going to be a musical act. And I said, the reason I did that was so that the first question I was asked when I left the stage wasn't, why didn't you talk about being trans? Because I didn't want to talk about stuff that causes me pain, I suppose. I don't know. Having spent a couple of decades struggling with my identity, I didn't want to relitigate that to every single stranger I spoke to. I wanted to talk about things that I found funny. All of the types of comedy that I enjoy, all of the surrealist, absurdist, metatextual comedy, by definition exists one layer removed from the reality of most audience members. So if you exist outside of the straight white cis man monoculture, not only am I taking people on a journey away from the airline peanuts world of conventional stand-up to a surreal world, I'm having to drag them from their assumptions about my identity and their lack of trust in me to even start to make that second journey into the absurd. Unfortunately, what that means is quite often there's a segregation of performers. I know for a fact that there are very vibrant black comedy clubs because the audience don't need to be explained what the black experience is. What one of the best comedy shows I ever performed at was an all-woman uh, and non-binary show that was arranged by a couple of women, one of whom's queer, one of whom is not white. And after a few of the acts had been on, I realised that I no longer needed to litigate my identity before I started my performance. So it freed me up to be able to just dive headfirst into what I wanted to perform. And it was one of the best experiences I ever had. But unfortunately, it is a very rare and very uncommon experience to have. Before the pandemic, I was wondering, is the live comedy arena a place where I have a future? There is sort of one full-time professional comedy reviewer and critic. There's a website called Chortle. That is the outlet. Mm. They explicitly went on a headhunt for a working class or BAME uh, reviewer <laughs> because <they're, laughs> yeah. they decide people's careers. Uh -huh. If you get a five-star review from Chortle, there will be interest because we just have this one monolithic outlet. 
So they looked for a, a working class or BAME uh, reviewer. They found a guy from Nottingham, working class guy. They offered him £400 to go to the fringe for a month. £400 is around a third of what your accommodation alone costs. Mm. So you would have to survive in an expensive festival, pay two-thirds of your accommodation, then food. Presumably you can get show tickets for free, but that doesn't... Then you're living off nothing. It's completely (laughs) impossible. (laughs) That's their working-class representation. Fuck. All the things that we know from experience are fucked about comedy. Exponentially copy and paste across yeah. the whole like culture industry. I almost don't want to bring it up, but there was some really good shit in both the labor manifestos in the pre-haircut night era. And like it had a section in 2017 called like culture for all. You know, they're going to put billions into arts and culture, more social housing construction. And in the social housing construction, they would build like music and performance venues, creating spaces for communities to make art. Everything we've spoken about is like trying to hone your craft in order to sell your craft as a commodity. Mm. But like, is it not perhaps more interesting to have people from your community performing in community spaces all across the country rather than it just being projected out by millionaire comedians we're talking about a lot at the same time but i think we need to remember it isn't just a problem of oh it would be harder for uh, a, a black or trans person to produce art as a commodity in a certain way it's also we have to challenge that premise in and of itself of like mm. is that the goal right yeah is that clear i don't i feel like i'm going mad i want to elaborate on it because i think you're absolutely right this idea that we have like monolithic celebrity figures that come out to london and Mm. dart around like either a small theater network or they do comedy clubs and then they go home that conception as artists that come out from the big city and then grace our communities and then go away (laughs) is absolutely fucked and stupid but yeah, to even conceptualise of doing it another way is so hard. Like, I have been in comedy clubs in the north in, in working-class areas, mm. and, like, the guy on stage is talking to an observational routine about the difference in wattage when you go on holiday to America. <laughs> and he's getting absolute silence, and he's in the green room going, did I, like, fluff one of those lines? It's like, they've never been to <laughs> fucking America. They don't go to America once a year, so they don't have, like, sh- like regular memories of what the fucking plugs are like. What's wrong fucking with you? Have a th- have- but the guy who booked that club at that time lived in Cambridge. So if, you wanted to perf- if I wanted to perform at a comedy mm. club mm. that is walking distance from my flat, I would have to go to Cambridge or London. There's another comedy club, which is like a 20 minutes drive from where I live. If I wanted the guy to ever see me, he lives in London. I have to go at least four hours down. Yeah. (laughs) That's like a massive round trip to perform at a comedy club that is around the corner for me. Because we see the idea that comedians have these sets which are about nothing and they're about nowhere. And they travel to communities they don't know, don't know the first thing about. They might mention, like, a famous ring road or something. But people, people clap because mm, like, they're mm. like, wow, you know about a fucking ring road? You've blown my mind because you're from London. <laughs> right? We have artists around the corner that we don't know the first thing about, but we know a lot about people who live in places that we don't know the first thing about. And why is our art structured that way? Why don't we have a community? Do you know Leicester? I really want to put Leicester mm, on the map mm, because they mm. had that. Yeah, Leicester yeah, yeah, comedy yeah. scene was so fucking good. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. Leicester Comedy Festival, which is the fourth biggest comedy festival mm-hmm. in the world, built a festival on top of them, completely ignored them, mm-hmm. and then told them that they wouldn't acknowledge them in their own award ceremony <sighs> in case the festival looked parochial on the national scene. Exactly. Exactly. We get the same in Manchester, don't we, where oh, well, yeah. promoters... Um, I mean, I haven't been booked really in Manchester for uh, about... I mean, over a year, maybe more, mm, in, in mm. things that by other people, by like other promoters yeah. here. Yeah. And um, all the time. I mean, they bring people over from America sometimes. Mm, mm, but mm. we don't even get, I mean, I'll get an open spot once every two, three years. And it's always when they're desperate. It's always yeah, ringing yeah, me yeah. and being like, James, someone dropped out. Are you around? Like, what do you do now? There's no real, like, nurturing of the no, scene. not at all. Mm. In most cities that you start in, for some reason that's the case because you go to another city you know i go to newcastle you're like a a queen 
Everyone's like, love what you do. Please come <laughs> yeah. back whenever you can. We'll put you up. We'll do this. We'll do that. The clubs that are on my bus route won't touch me. <laughs> well, I think the, mo- the, most char- <laughs> the most charitable interpretation of that is just they sort of saw us when we sucked because we were the most yeah. new. But yeah. like, fuck that. That's fine. Like when you're That's new at normal. a thing, you're not as good at it as later. So, but when, when you go to another place and you're more formed already then people are like fuck this person's really good because that's 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 their baseline of you and yeah i think it's it's that combined with like oh london oh shiny yeah and also the 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 fucked economic thing of we need to promote this so people you know they're, they're to an extent cogs in that fucking giant machine of people give state you know audiences give status and know these acts more because of the touring system that Sean explained. So therefore they're going to promote them because that sells tickets and ultimately they're a business and they have to think about the bottom line because I could say they're they're symptoms of the disease because no one's thinking about arts other than like, because even if you think of like professional artists and arts of profession and comedies of profession, you're limiting how you think about it. Cause it, you're thinking, you know, we were talking about comedy and oh, it won't get arts council funding, but even that is a limited way of thinking about it because really to solve these problems, you need this like big holistic view, you know, like, as I mentioned earlier, like thinking about arts, not just in terms of how can we target funding, but as part of your public house building policy, mm. like that's how you think about it of like, or, or you think about, you know, not just art targeted arts funding, but you think about like, how does this exist as part of a, a, a livable wage or good welfare systems or, you know, UBI or whatever. Yeah. And then you'd solve so many of these problems, which is fucked, isn't it? To, to when you're like, oh, there's this thing that's making my specific life hard and depressing. And then if you dig, 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 you're like, oh, it's capitalism. Mm. Yeah. And capitalism can't even use its own logic to solve some of these problems because like, it is probably in many ways cheaper and more effective just to build a small, flimsy DIY art centre than it is to put like mm. the necessary hundreds of millions into mental health support. But it would solve <laughs> a lot of the same outcomes. You only need a couple yeah. of shitty open mic nights and like you've probably take at least five people back from the brink. <laughs> <laughs> or push them over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry mate that just didn't fly people really really yeah. just don't remember Gordon Brown's policies well I guess it comes back to the age old thing of you have to support the things that are local to you and get involved in it mm. and I don't mean do it as like a keep piece. supporting live comedy well I mean we all say it but I think we need to frame yeah. it not as like a uh, an action of individual largesse but you actually go in and mesh mm. yourself in a community that then you are trapped in because your friends are all there <laughs> so try yeah. escaping yeah. now idiot <laughs> all your friends <laughs> are in the community we need to get rid of those ideas that some art is legitimate and some is illegitimate because we've got all these biases you know that like one of the greatest things about one of the greatest hurdles for overcoming trying to make gigs um, accessible to people with no money is that yeah. there is like a well-known psychology to how much mm. you ask for something because if you ask for less, people are like, well, it's going to be it's fucking be shit. shit then, so I'm not going to go. Yeah. But if you ask for more, then like the kind of people that are going to come to it, I hate the kind of audiences that can pay £15, but occasionally I need to play to them, but I don't like them. They're very yeah. old. Well, we we had a big debate about this and sort of accessibility and concessions when we were talking about the Christmas show we ended up doing on a, you know election week yeah. last year. We were like, well, what should, what price should we put in it? And we were like, well, when we put things at an affordable price that we think is like the ethical place to put the price, they tank. So we were like, fuck it, let's just copy other people and put it for fourteen quid. What happened? They sold mm. out yeah. two nights. And we were there was a point where we had to build another row against fire regulations mm. and literally build it <laughs> on the stage because mm. um, it was so sold out and so full. Because people went, oh, that'll be good. This yeah. is it. Same act. Do you know what it is, though? It's the same acts that have been in the city for yeah. like a <laughs> no decade. One comes yeah. Money brings money, status brings yeah. status, and confidence brings confidence. It's, it. all, it's all that shit, isn't it? Yeah. And it's just this, it's this, this giant, like, the only way to solve it is to untangle all these things. Like, you need to sort out, build a new form of culture that isn't connected to how much money it makes and its value is in and of itself, not because of some sterling value. Mm. 
some of the best art and performances I've ever been to or have experienced, I experienced with just five other people in the audience and I could just put what I want in the bucket at the end. Like mm. I've never had a life-changing experience as an audience of art surrounded by lots of other affluent people. I've always seen something <laughs> yeah, that, that is was so true. okay. But yeah, the stuff yeah, that yeah. has absolutely done my head in and like I think about to this day were weird productions made on the fringes of cities by, you know, talented but bad at marketing artists who made nothing and it was seen by so few people. I, to this day, I'm completely haunted by Sam Nicaresti's preview show, you know, sat on the top deck of a repurposed bus mm. and then looking out of a window at... Maroon Man. Maroon Man, Maroon Man, <laughs> who, you know, Sam had got to stand in a dimly lit, like, underroad tunnel. You know, that's the kind of experience you're talking about where you're like... Yeah. Fuck, this is good. I am now scared. Because <laughs> you're never going to have that, that right? is art. <laughs> but you're never going to have that in a big theatre full of bourgeois people, right? You need to be in a fucked up place, right, where you can genuinely think, this guy could kill us. Yeah. You're never going to have that at, like, the Albany. Well, yeah, and it, you know, and it's midnight, and it's totally new, and no one's ever seen it. And like, I, I got to be honest, of course, it's elevated because I know the person who made that thing. It naturally makes it more exciting because you have relationship with the person who's making the thing. Yeah. Um, and it's what let you access the fear because you knew through that social knowledge that he might kill you. Yeah. <laughs> In. 2018 i did a show called bedtime which was on the top of a double-decker bus and it was a sleepover with me and the audience that turned into this waking nightmare there's a bit in the show where i say i'm going to order a pizza for everyone and i need someone to look out so obviously it's a bus so you've got the bus windows and um i say to you know someone at the front of the bus okay listen you're on pizza lookout i think the pizza's going to come from down there uh we muck about a bit more and we try and do a prank call and i saw sort of the numbers from the audience so you know okay zero seven eight and um we get the number down and we give it a ring but it's number not recognized doesn't work it's a big disaster takes ages then later in the show i'm just sort of talking about having a good time with all my friends how how happy i am everyone's here and uh, this phone goes off you can hear this phone ring in and i'm getting really angry because you know it's a sleepover but it's also a, a comedy show and you should turn your phones off and i'm like whose phone is this who's who's got their phone on how rude hold on it's my phone now i pick up the phone and it's the number from earlier that we tried to ring as an audience. And there it is. You can see it, 0784, whatnot. And um, I just go deathly quiet and pale. And I stop talking. And then the phone picks up and this voice comes in. And uh, it's Maroon Man. And he's saying, Hello. Did you call me? Did you call me? It's time to go home. And this is this is going on, and it's this kind of weird atmosphere where suddenly you're watching a, me on stage, and I've stopped moving. I'm not doing anything. Where the person is looking out for this pizza, you've got this one person. All the other windows on the bus are kind of boarded up to make it like a venue, but at the front you could see out the front of the bus. So you've got like this group of two or three people who are looking out the front down this kind of alleyway near these bins, this kind of overpass, and suddenly from out the bin steps this figure dressed all in maroon he's got maroon trousers and maroon shirt maroon braces and his face and hands and all of his visible limbs are painted are just this vivid block maroon maroon man maroon man maroon man except for his eyes which are white and he looks up at the bus and points very slowly with a shaking finger right at the person who was looking for the pizza. And then he runs as fast as he can into the bottom of the bus. Sam. And then it cuts out. Sam. Sam never really fully explained to me what Maroon Man is or represented to him. So as far as I was concerned, it was just this figure from a dream he'd had where I had to get some maroon to red face paint, apply it all over my face and neck completely, which then vanished into a maroon shirt I was wearing with maroon braces 
and tie. Maroon trousers I had on as well. I think red socks and brown but could pass from maroon at night shoes and some red gloves as well. And I also had to put, I had to black out my teeth and put this stuff all over them. And I don't know what's in it, but it tasted horrible and it burned my lips. And Sam required me, again, he didn't really explain why, to uh, wait around for a bit and then just appear in his show near the end. The bus was was in the middle of this quite busy thoroughfare that people would be moving through. And at the edge of that was a small row of big blue skips. So once I had got dressed, Sam said I would have to wait for probably about 30 minutes. I expected it would probably be longer. And it was significantly longer that I was crouched behind this big bin looking very sinister Evil, I think, is probably the a term that could be fairly used. Um, waiting for Sam to ring me as a signal. And so I walked past one person on the way there and they screamed. It was good. I thought it was quite funny, but I mean, it was actually a lot more scary than I thought it was going to be. It was actually terrifying. People were screaming. When you're in a normal venue, you're, you're enclosed. There are no windows in most cases if you're in a normal sort of black box space you are just within the world of that show in a bus you can see the outside but then you see this show has actually extended beyond that and there are sinister things out there that are coming towards you and your venue is now actually a trap Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. Additional music from Draw Jack, Josie Hypatia Grounds and Sam Nicaresti. Thanks to our guests, Jane Edwards, Josie Hypatia Grounds, Sam Nicaresti and Tom Burgess. Uh, check out the description for links to their various cool projects. If you enjoy Mandatory Redistribution Party, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple to help others find us or supporting us on Patreon. Thank you for doing so, and thank you, of course, for listening. Farewell, friend. Mm-hmm.